Let's focus from, change the focus just a little bit from um, electric, electricity to um, the price of real estate, homes. Um, and um, I mean, just, just I, I was having a conversation um, just, just last night with some young folks. Um, and uh, as time goes by, who's a young folk keeps getting redefined <laughs> by me. Uh, but these are legitimately young folks, mm-hmm. 20s or so. Um, and they're just two or three years into their career. They're Los Angelinos. Um, and a couple things struck me is that they didn't seem to have much hope being able to acquire a home, the traditional American dream, buy your home. Um, and, uh, and you know, most of us, uh, we go back when we were two or three years in our career, um, we're looking forward to struggle to acquire enough to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. But past generations, it seems to me, were generally optimistic. What struck me in this conversation I had is that there was a lot of pessimism, right. um, but here here we are. Los Angelinos doesn't Los Angelinos uh, have a lot of pessimism about their ability to acquire the American dream? If you define the American dream, in part, as having their own home, right? Um, comparison between Texas and California on real estate and home prices. Yeah, well, I, I would first begin by agreeing that home ownership is a big part of what we have thought of as right. the American right. dream. Um, it's the basis for creating wealth and um, uh, becoming financially secure in um, one's life and also just having a sense of uh, ownership and autonomy and sure. all of that, right? So it's, it's, it's bigger than just uh, whether one rents or owns. There's a sense of... Um, uh, I, could, I think there's there's a virtuous cycle that comes from <clears throat> from home ownership, and so it's it's a, it's a very important um, topic, uh, one that I'm increasingly interested in and focused on because mm-hmm. I think it is probably the single biggest public policy failure in California that I can think of over the last generation, and the biggest challenge moving forward. Um, if you look at California in the mid 20th century, the post-war period. California built a huge amount of new homes. Um, San Fernando Valley was San Fernando Valley, built San out Gabriel there Valley, uh, Orange County, right? Yeah. And this is just Southern California. If you go up to the, the sure. Bay Area, similar um, uh, circumstances as well. And it was affordable. It was affordable for middle-income people to buy a home in California. And that's part of what pulled normal, average, everyday Americans from other parts of the United States into California in the post-war period. Um, One of the things that in in researching this uh, was remarkable to me is that the population of California doubled between 1970 and 2020 in that 50-year period. It was about 20 million in 1970 and it went up to almost 40 million in 2020. So we doubled the population of the state, but the state in 1970 was pretty well built out, if you think about it. Uh, these these urban areas had already been pretty well developed. And so it was a question of how did, were we going to build enough housing for 20 million new people over that 50 year period? And we just didn't do it. We didn't come close, not only housing, but other infrastructure like roads and, and all of that. Um, and so we've, that's sort of the core 
underlying cause of our current housing crisis is that we've got this um, unmet, right. uh, we, the, the demand is there and the supply has not met the demand over time. We haven't built sufficiently. And so that pure supply and demand creates a situation where housing prices are exorbitant. There's not sort of like a new uh, supply coming in sufficient to um, <clears throat> to meet the demand. And also the, the price of construction of new homes, um, real, you know, sort of raw real estate plus construction and, and permitting and all of that has been um, made exorbitant again by these other values. For example, labor costs, prevailing wage laws and things like that. Right. This is more expensive to pay the workers to build the homes. It might be a, a valuable thing, but it adds to the cost, right? Environmental protections, CEQA uh, and other things, makes it much more difficult to permit um, new construction. And so throughout the state, especially in the coastal area, it's been very difficult to um, uh, build sufficient housing. And that's why we have the crisis we have. If you look at other parts of the country, Texas looks a lot today like California did in the 1950s and 60s. It's building houses that people can afford, right? It's in fact, I think The Economist magazine um, in an issue just a few weeks back quoted you uh, on that, that Texas now resembles California in many ways in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, that's... It's something that's kind of come to me over time is that if you if you sort of look at in, in big picture, um, California uh, was thriving uh, as a as a state in the really throughout the twentieth century, but especially in that mid century period, uh, in the wake of World War II, there was this huge influx of people from across the country building up the state. Uh, the institutions were growing. Uh, the University of California, Cal State, building new campuses, uh, in, you know, uh, in, you know, professional sports teams moving from the East Coast into California. Sure. Uh, in so many ways, it was the magnet of the promise of America. Uh, and again, it was affordable for ordinary Americans to move here and buy into it. Right. Um, over time, it's it hasn't continued to be able to or to choose to embrace growth in the same way. And so it, California now resembles more, in my view, New York. So mm -hmm. New York State used to be, including New York City, used mm -hmm. to be the high growth, high population right. Right. Um, corner of the country. And around the mid 20th century, uh, especially in the 1970s, growth stopped. Population growth stopped in New York. It has basically the same population today as it did 50 years ago. <clears throat> and so we could be entering into a place like that in California becoming more like New York. We're always going to be important. We're always going to be big, but we're not going to be growing. There are going to be other parts of the country yeah. that the growth areas. And that's where Texas is. Texas, other um, Florida, North Carolina, Tennessee, places like that. Those are the new growth areas in, Cal in the United States. And that's where people are going in order to buy a home, raise a family, um, start, a, start a new company and such. Um, another anecdotal piece of information, I had dinner with longtime friends last week, um, and their son-in-law and daughter, um, well, the son-in-law is a very successful lawyer in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. 
Um, and they're both, son-in-law and daughter, are both to the left of center, the liberals. Mm -hmm. They have a, two young kids. In September, they're leaving California and moving to, of all places, Houston. Mm -hmm. But he will continue to practice as a California lawyer, which means they've made a decision to bring the family up in Texas, and he's going to make the sacrifice to promote, uh, to um, practice law remotely, which is now, to a large extent, possible uh, with Zoom and everything else. Most courts now accept appearances by, by Zoom, if not by phone, and then fly back as necessary. So, so, so you know, to, for the in-person hearing. And that just really shocked me. So, so, so when I heard that, um, it, I, I, it dawned on me that it's not just about political orientation. Right. That's economics. Right. Sure. It, there's been some polling. Our, our institute did some polling on this. Uh, we asked people, we did a national poll last fall, and we focused on the five largest population states, California, New York, Florida, <clears throat> Texas, and Pennsylvania. And one of the questions we asked in the poll was, have you thought about leaving your state? And there is a political, there was a political dimension to that, that Republicans in California were more interested in considering moving out of state. Uh, same thing in New York. Republicans in New York were looking to move out. Uh, in Texas and Florida, it was Democrats who said, I'm more interested in getting out of this place, right? <laughs> so I, I do think there there is, at least to some degree, a sorting politically in right. our country where people would rather be in a place where their neighbors, their state government, more closely aligns with their own philosophy, as we were talking about sure. before, this visceral uh, vision of, of what they think their culture and their country should be, right? Well, it's kind of this intolerance uh, uh, thing we, we have collectively, regardless of where, whether you're left or you're right, yeah. we've all become more intolerant That's of right. the other that's right. So th that does, I think, drive some movement. But yeah. like your your young friend, who's uh, LA lawyer, left of center, is still moving to Houston. There, more people are choosing to move for economic reasons than for political like alignment, right? Yeah. And so uh, for for them, it's either like better job opportunities, but even more so, I think, um, the ability to buy a house. So probably for that the same amount of money, they could buy twice the house in Houston that they could buy in LA County, right? And so if you're raising two young kids and you want to be in a, in a neighborhood and a community where you can have <clears throat> a, a, a nice house and a yard to play in and maybe um, you know a, a higher end community, then you're, you may have to you know move because you perhaps can't afford that in California, but you could afford that in another part of the country. So absolutely, I would say, and this is driving a lot of it, is economics. And one other thing you mentioned is, I think, really important for California as a state to understand, is that remote work changes the game, right? The ability to live anywhere right. and uh, continue to work in a California-based business um, is really um, shaking up uh, the, the normal patterns. Um, we're doing this interview in downtown LA and all around us there are buildings that are half empty. Same thing in San Francisco um, where we've recently been doing some, some research about um, 
office vacancies in the financial district of San Francisco. It's shocking. It's shocking just in the wake of the pandemic, uh, how many law firms and other businesses, um, insurance businesses and such, uh, office workers are no longer coming into work, right? And they can, mm. they can actually, in many cases, uh, construct their life so that they aren't actually needing to be physically all the time in these uh, urban areas in Los Angeles or on the Bay Area or otherwise. Remote work is no friend of California. I think that's right. I think, well, it's, it's no friend of the way California has been structured and probably no friend to the urban areas in California. Mm -hmm. It may be friendly to actual individuals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who are able to construct their lives in a way that they prefer to not have to commute every day and have more time with their families and all of that. So right. it's, it's a very complex, I think, social phenomenon uh, that we're just beginning to learn about. It, um, you, know, you mentioned uh, those young folks could pick up and buy a home in Houston uh, that's twice as large, which I guess maybe do the rough math on it means it's uh, uh, half as expensive. That's about right. Um, uh, yeah. Which is about right. And, and uh, you know, I, in my simplistic way of looking at the housing prices in, in the Los Angeles area, I always just assumed it was the lack of uh, supply of more land. Uh, so you either have to go up, which is more expensive to build up as opposed to out. Um, and, and, but apparently uh, a lot of the reason why the housing builds have not kept pace with population growth is not just a reduced available land, but because of all the regulations, environmental, and everything else that goes with it, that also drives up that cost. Yeah, I would say that those are both true. I mean, we're we're hemmed in by, beautifully, hemmed in right, by right. the ocean and mountains and such. And so we don't have the ability that, say, Dallas-Fort Worth has to grow um, endlessly. It, it could spread all the way up to Oklahoma City without any obstruction. Don't, right? don't, don't, don't tell the <laughs> Oklahomans that. <laughs> if we were to have this conversation 50 years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like one continuous city from... Uh, from Dallas up to Oklahoma City, but but uh, that's just part of the the uh, the topography of of right. uh, a lot of these sort of high growth areas. Is there's no physical constraint that we have in, in the Bay Area. It's even more so that San Francisco just is built out. It was built out a hundred years ago, as almost right. right? That right. the the little peninsula just can't expand, and so um, there are physical constraints. But I think even on top of that, infill development could work, right, in a more affordable way right. if we didn't have the regulatory layer, uh, the tax layer that makes it um, more expensive to build here than in other places. Well, taxes. Um, we, we've kind of mentioned taxes in, in passing, and I know taxes is a big issue in your book. Uh, the tax world in Texas is very different than the tax world in California. Can you talk, spend some time talking about how the two contrast? Yeah. Well, um, it seems to me that taxes is one of the like, clearest examples of how our federal system allows states to pursue different um, objectives, right? And so we have a situation where um, some states construct their tax structure. I mean, every state needs to raise money, right, to make yeah. 
state government operate sure. and they actually states have to balance their budgets unlike the federal government so there has to be as much revenue as there is spending at the state level right and um, some states you know the, the, the three major forms of uh, state level taxation um, state and local level taxation is uh, property tax uh, sales tax and income tax right mm -hmm. and then there's you you go after that to one, one one of those doesn't exist in Texas. That's right. Which we'll get to later. I know. Does not, right? Yes. And 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 in um, a fair number of American states, Nevada and, and Florida and others, right? So some states have chosen basically to take one tax source completely off the table, um, and income tax is one of those in in Texas and, and some other places. Um, other states have rely almost exclusively on. Um, you know, property tax, right? Or and and other states have a very low property. And so, California's situation is we've capped property taxes through Proposition 13, almost uh, uh, the Jarvis, the Jarvis, uh, Jarvis. Uh, Gar Jarvis Gann initiative in 1978. And so, um, that's in our state constitution. It can only be repealed by a vote of the people, and it hasn't happened. So, that puts some limitation on our ability to rely on the property tax. And so, we rely more heavily on sales and um, uh, in an extraordinary way, we have a high reliance on income tax in California, especially income tax. It's very progressive income tax, income tax on the higher earners. Mm -hmm. um, other states, as you say, Texas, has a zero income tax. It couldn't be different. I mean, mm -hmm. California has the highest personal um, income tax, the highest marginal rate of any state over 13%. Um, that's on top of your federal Fit. income tax. And especially true since there was uh, tax reform under the Trump administration. Uh, it used to be that state taxpayers could deduct the amount they paid in their uh, state taxes against their federal income taxes. Now that's been reduced down to near zero, $10,000 a year. And so you really do feel the bite if you're a, a high income person in a right. high, personal income tax state, you're paying a lot more. And so that That's raises- That's a driver to leave California well, to it, a, it, no income It can tax be, state. and this is a very interesting question, is how much are high income people willing to pay a premium to live in a state like New York or a state like California, right. as opposed to picking up their residence uh, and moving to say Nevada, which is zero income tax, or uh, Texas or Florida. And there's been a lot of, you know, economists are looking at this very closely, looking at tax returns to see where high-income people are moving. And there's a big debate as to what the effects of this are going to be. In the short term, uh, it's maybe not as high as you would expect it to be, in part because people have reasons to stay put. Either they've built a business or they're part of an, uh, an economic cluster like Silicon Valley that where they want to stay and there's like good reasons to stay, or they love the environment, the the um, you know the, the natural beauty of a place like California, or they've got parents or children who live here and they don't want to leave, um, so that goes a long way to keeping people in place. But on the other hand, if people really do, um, you know, if they're able to sort of uh, negotiate or work around those attachments, especially in an era of remote work, right? right it's I think we're going to see more and more people making economic decisions to move to lower tax places. And that's a real 
concern for a place like California. I would say it's a bigger concern for a place like, say, Illinois, right? Because California can continue to hold a lot of people by virtue of the beautiful natural environment and climate that we have here and all the amenities. But if you're a state like Illinois and Chicago is having a lot of uh, sort of disorder and such, I think it's it's harder for a place like Illinois to keep its high income people than it is maybe for a place like California. But I wouldn't be uh, too cocky if I were California. I think it's there's like an indefinite amount that we can tax wealthy people before they say, oh, enough, I'm going to reorganize my life. Well, I, I would clearly agree that most people are willing to pay a premium for California, all the natural beauty and the wonderful climate that California has. Um, but I think there is a limit to the amount of the premium That's right. people are willing to pay. Um, and I don't know how that would be quantified. Maybe it's as a percentage of um, their uh, income vis-a-vis -vis what they can exist on in another state, which less cost of doing business. I suspect that couple, the lawyer and his wife with, yep. with the young kids, uh, they were willing to pay a premium for many years, but sometime in the last year or two years, um, that premium became too expensive for them, that they weren't willing to pay that premium. Uh, I mean, this is all guess and speculation what that premium, the maximum right. premium might be, because right. I doubt there's any type of research into to quantify that. No, I mean, people are trying to figure that out. And I, I think the other thing people are trying to figure out is the balance between this economic calculation and then maybe the political cultural uh, calculation. If you are a progressive in uh, Florida with Ron DeSantis as as governor, are you feeling like this is this is getting too conservative for me? I'm going to look for someplace else. Or if you're a if you're a conservative in California, do you do you think that you know Gavin Newsom and the Democrats are just too left wing for me? I, I just I just can't continue to be happy in this environment. Right. So uh, that is a factor, and then the economics is a factor. But I do th there's a sorting that's happening. I think in general, from blue to red states, for the largely for the economics of it, um, from high cost to lower cost, and then I think there's a sorting ideologically from red to blue states to try to sort out ideologically. Oh, interesting. You know, you, you, you had uh, a statement in the book that really caught my t uh, surprise, because I'm from a generation that, uh, growing up, California was famous for its youth culture. Uh, ever go to go to particularly Southern California, um, Muscle Beach, Venice, things mm -hmm. happened, uh, new ideas were on the block every day with that youth culture, a uh, very youthful um, place to be. And you, you had a point in your book uh, that, that caught me by surprise but because you said that now Texas has a higher percentage of people under 18 right. than California, and California has been losing young people Texas has been gaining young people. That's right. Um, what would that all be about? Well, it it speaks to a lot of these issues that we've been discussing. That for people who do have children, um, that that tends to be uh, when when one is relatively young in twenties and thirties, that is a time when people feel more mobile. Right. They're not as tied down or rooted in their community, and so that is an age where. More people do make this calculation: Is this a place where I want to build my life or not? Yeah. 
And for a lot of people with children, uh, or they want to have a home, they want to be able to, to, to build a family, and the co if the cost is prohibitive, then they're going to look elsewhere. Um, and so I, that's a big thing that's driving the right. age demographic shift, where California does have, I think, about three points less um, percentage in terms of uh, under 18 than a place like Texas. Um, higher percentage of Californians are over 65 years old than Texas. So, than Texas, right? Okay. Well, that's a shocker. You know, now, now Florida would be different because Florida right. attracts retirees, but uh, California has a, a larger percentage of those over 65 than Texas, and so there's there, there's this gravitation toward uh, lower cost states by younger people in general, and. And it's, I think that's largely dri driven by the economics, right. that it's just, it's much more difficult to sort of um, buy a home, build a family in a high cost place like California. Yeah. I, uh, I suppose then that means California is graying uh, compared to Texas, uh, marginally. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I mean, just in terms of demographics, um, I mentioned that California group by double from 20 million to 40 million between 1970 and 2020. Sure. It was right about at 2020 that we, we peaked in population at, I think it was 39.6 or 7 million people. California is like. losing population. So now over the last um, three years or so, for the first time in our history, we're losing population. Um, we lost, for the first time in our history, a, a member of Congress, uh, which is determined mm -hmm. by uh, comparative state population, and if the projections hold, we could lose several members in the next reapportionment. So that, that's just a measure of the, uh, the relative population growth or shrinkage of states. If you look at other sort of Rust Belt states, <clears throat> New York, Illinois, those, those states have been losing population comparatively to the rest mm -hmm. of the country for a long time. Now, California strikingly, given our history, is moving into that camp of being a population uh, loser as opposed to a gainer. Right. That's, that's huge. Well, um, last two or three years, how, how many people on average over the last three years are is California losing to other states? Uh, so I don't have the, the figures off the top of my head. In terms of total population, we went from nearly... Uh, 40 million to we're just now a little bit above 39 and we could drop below 39. So that'd be a, a net loss of a million people almost if, if trends continue over just a few years. So that's that's net loss um, in terms of uh, net domestic migration. We've lost people, this is not well sort of known, we've been losing people to other states on a net basis since the 1990s. Okay. Right. If we look at, again, mid-20th century, absolutely a net gainer. We were picking up people. Not a lot of people were moving from California to other places. They were wanting to be here, and people were moving here. But starting in the 1990s, when we had sort of um, the first big economic recession, that was the end of the Cold War, the demise of the mm -hmm. aerospace industry, right. all of that, um, people started to move out of California to other places. This is also starting to feel the effects of not enough home construction, home prices compared to other places increasing. And so from the 90s forward, every year we've been losing, I mean, on average, 
um, people to, to other states. And so what masked that for a long time was international migration into California. Right. That's why we were still continuing to grow as a state. It was uh, migration from other countries into California. As that slowed in recent years during the pandemic and such, um, we've, we're in a situation where we're actually losing total population, which is, it has all sorts of implications that we haven't even started to experience really in a big way as a state uh, to have a a shrinking population. So over the last three years, maybe we've lost a million people total population, but that's net. We're still getting people from outside the country and we have natural births. That's right. So that would mean that we're We're losing losing hundreds of thousands of people per per year domestically. That's right. So a lot of people are making this this decision that we've been talking about, uh, you know, giving up all the natural advantages and attractions of the state for some other part of the country because something's driving them out, which is in most cases the high costs of being here. And so, so who are these people um, that are fleeing California? Yeah, so it, um, there's been interesting research on this that, uh, <laughs> and some people take sort of a sanguine view of this. They think, oh, Maybe we had too much population, maybe it's better to have fewer people. And especially because the people who are coming in, mm-hmm. the domestic mm-hmm. migration into California tend to be uh, people with the ability to pay the premium, which means right. that they are highly educated, professional people. And so those are the people who are moving into the tech sector, into professions, uh, and want to be yeah. in, in major urban area uh, or in the Silicon Valley. So those tend to be the people moving in. The people moving out tend to be middle, lower income people, uh, usually. Middle class to lower? Middle to lower class, typically with lower uh, educational um, attainment. And so those are the people who are being squeezed out. They don't, they're not able to pay this premium we're talking about. And they're struggling over not only high housing costs, but high utilities that we're also mentioning. Um, just sort of the high cost of living across the board is causing them to make this economic calculation. Could I have a better economic life in a place next door in Arizona or Nevada or even as far as Texas or some other state? So, and looking at just strictly as an economic issue and that that grouping, does that apply uh, across all uh, race groups? both all genders and yeah that's not as well understood um as opposed to just the pure sort of economics or uh but uh it's a good question and one one thing i would say is there's there's probably been more white migration out of california when i when i mentioned the state's population has doubled over the uh the last 50 years all of that growth all of that growth is from the non-white population Okay, so the actual population of whites in California has declined between 1970 and 50 years later. I think a term you use in your book, which is common to both Texas and California, is that both states are majority minority, minority meaning yeah. uh, the white population is not a majority in either state. Right, and so at some point that becomes almost like nonsensical because it, <laughs> if it's not a, if it's if it's a, it can't be a majority minority right but in, in any event it's it's the, I, had, I had to think about that right for a while the, the and, groups that, that finally got it the so groups are historically racial ethnic minorities in this country African Americans 
uh, Hispanic, Latinos, Asians constitute a majority of both those states. So just to kind of play out the, the demographics, I, uh, Hispanics, exactly the same percentage of the population in Texas and Florida. Texas has about twice the percentage of African-Americans, but uh, California has a much higher percentage of Asian-Americans right. than Texas does. The, the Asian population is approaching one half of the white population in California. It's about 16% right. um, Asian in California. And the white population is down around thirty-five uh, percent. So, so if if these people um, in the middle are leaving, yeah, uh, that only leaves the people at the top of the economics, right? And the people at the bottom of the economics. This is the hollowing out of the, of the middle, of the class, middle class. I think we hear about. Yeah, yeah. Is that sustainable in a democratic society as we know it in this country? Yeah, I mean uh, the. Sort of American system of democracy has sort of presupposed that the, there'd be a large middle class that yeah. sort of provide uh, the ballast for the society that we wouldn't have this um, feudal system essentially a very the very um, well off and then the impoverished at the other end but instead um, those would be We'd have those classes in society, but the, the, the large mass of society would be the broad middle. Right. And um, we don't really have much experience in this country of that kind of um, polarization, economic polarization between the haves and the have-nots. But absolutely in California, we're starting to see more of that. That there are some, we have by far more billionaires in California than in any other state. Um, yeah. We're producing enormous wealth at the high end, and then we have the highest poverty rate in the nation by a substantial margin if it's adjusted for the cost of living. So there are a lot of, there, there's a, about a fifth of the population of California is defined as uh, in poverty. Right. Um, and that's, those are people who are just living basically month to month on the margins of society depending on government subsidies and sort of um, working, many of them working very hard, um, multiple jobs and, and really stretching just to get by. Well, you know, every now and then um, th th there's a phrase that, that will come out that helps to crystallize something. And I never heard this phrase before until you mentioned it a moment ago, but the reference to California becoming a feudal society. Yeah. Um, that really is stunning. Um, but it captures in a way that I never understood before what actually is going on with hollowing out of the California middle class. Yeah, there's a there's a well-known demographer, Joel Kotkin, who's who's used this uh, phrase to describe what's happening in California, and he's he's got compelling um, statistics to back up uh, <clears throat> the phenomenon that mm. we're describing. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, in the last 50 years, um, and this was in the context of the housing prices getting very expensive, but we haven't been building roads, right. uh, new roads or repairing old roads. Um, we pay a lot of extra taxes on mm -hmm. gasoline here in California. Uh, I think that in uh, roughly in California, we're paying about $5 a gallon, give or take a dime or two on either side right. uh, for regular unleaded. Uh, and you go to a place like Texas or Florida, it's about $2 less a right. gallon. Uh, and I think a good portion of that is related to taxes. So where are those taxes going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so um, much of the tax is supposed to be dedicated to road maintenance. Um, right. And some of it gets diverted to mass transit programs. Right. Uh, but um, I would say more broadly that you're right. If you Again, if you go back to mid-century, California was the national leader in building infrastructure, right. um, highways, roads, all of that. And there was a big commitment to, to investment um, in making the system sort of uh, meet the needs of the current population and was actually built sufficiently to um, handle the population growth that was going to follow from 1970 on. But we haven't kept up with certainly not new construction or maintenance of right. that infrastructure. And so that's where we feel a lot of the stresses. I mean, we're paying, we continue to pay taxes, which to some extent keeps uh, roads functioning, but we're not we're not seeing the, the level of quality in our infrastructure that we would expect given the taxes that we pay. Hmm. Well, I also want to come back and revisit this, as we mentioned, the Janus decision. Yeah. Uh, we'd also just brushed lightly on public employee unions and unions in general, <clears throat> yeah. contrasting California um, to, to, to Texas. Uh, and just, again, Janus, I think, was a Supreme Court decision that came out four, five, six, seven years ago. Um, that said you cannot compel uh, someone to be in a union and pay pay dues. I think it's because it's uh, it's compelled speech and, right. and so forth and so on. Um, since the leadership of the unions don't uh, collect the money, use it for political purposes that may not agree with political uh, thoughts and ideology of, of the individual union members. And so I think that the public employee enrollment in California has been going down um, where it was a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But um, what's the union situation in, uh, do they have, uh, it's, an it's a right to work state, Texas? Um, yeah, it's a right to work state. And for the most part, um, public sector employees are prohibited from uh, collective bargaining and unionization. There's a small exception for some uh, public safety, right. uh, police and fire unions, I think maybe only in the largest cities, yeah. uh, Houston, um, but uh, for the most part, public sector workers are prohibited by law from organizing or striking. And in fact, um, teachers in Texas are, again, prohibited from forming a union uh, that would collectively bargain or strike. And if they do strike, uh, they can be summarily fired and their pensions taken away. All right. So there's, there's like no quarter given to... Uh, yeah. Uh, union organizing by teachers or other public sector employees in California. That, I mean, I'm sorry, in Texas. And that, that has an enormous effect um, on sort of the operation of public institutions, including schools in Texas. It also has a political effect because part of the superstructure, I would say, of uh, democratic politics in California is the close connection between organized labor and the Democratic Party. And in Texas, the Democratic Party just doesn't have that support structure from organized labor in the same way. So again, these different factors are reinforcing the red versus blue division. Um, California decided in the 1970s, um, actually, to allow for 
public unionization. Um, and it, you know, half a century on, we see that um, public sector unions, CTA and others are okay, California, California Teachers Association, Teachers Association mm-hmm. and other pu- public sector unions are some of the most powerful and important interest groups in the state and close allies with the majority Democratic Party. Uh, whereas in Texas, again, there's there's no counterpart that the Democratic Party in Texas can rely on for that kind of um, support. I suspect uh, that that factor alone has a very significant, if not a huge, impact on California going blue and Texas going red. I agree. But that's you know I lay out all these different factors, um, and I I. I place a little bit of weight on them, but, and I think political culture ultimately is at the, at the bottom of all of it, but um, one way it's manifested is in the commitment to um, unionization in California and the resistance to it in Texas and other states, and that's a major factor in, I think, not only uh, these states becoming what they are today, but probably preserving this division moving into the future. Right. Um, I, I think we have probably a stable, a pretty stable red-blue division. And part, part of the reason for that is these underlying supports or lacks of supports for um, a particular political ideology in these different states. So we've got um, highest income tax in the nation in California, no state income tax in Texas. Um, we have... Um, I think that uh, I just I don't don't think this is in your book because the book came out before the latest figures mm-hmm. came out on the California budget. Uh, but the current budget under consideration, um, I think, as we speak, um, is about three hundred and twenty billion, give or take a billion. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're looking at a thirty-three, thirty-four billion dollar deficit. While on the other hand, Texas uh, budget is like 120, 130 billion, without any, uh, with, with a 30 billion dollar surplus. Um, so uh, th- that's a lot to unpack. Um, so we're a high tax state, but we're running a budget deficit the current year. Um, but yet Texas is a nice big uh, surplus uh, with no state income tax. Uh, So uh, what's the dynamics with all of that? Uh, So the way taxes are structured, the tax system is structured in California, it's a a boom or bust system. And so when the economy is flourishing, when the stock market especially, or investments are doing well, we have some very wealthy people in the state who profit a lot, and those people pay a large percentage of the overall re- revenue stream into mm. the state coffers. And so in, in boom times, we actually do much better from a revenue standpoint than a state like Texas. And then when the stock market turns south, um, uh, these wealthy people are not having to pay as much tax tax, they can even claim losses, right? And so mm-hmm. California, because it's so dependent on the personal income tax of high income people, mm-hmm. uh, is vulnerable 
to these swings. Um, the last governor, Jerry Brown, uh, was very cognizant of this, and he he was trying to warn his fellow Democrats not to overspend in the good years. He he even brought up the biblical example of the seven years of plenty followed by the seven years of famine. He said, there's going to be a famine coming, so be ready. And so he, he, you know, he instituted what he called the rainy day fund. And that, so that's going to you know, cushion the blow a little bit. But the swings are so big that we, we really do have a, a big problem. In Texas, because they aren't reliant on a volatile income or revenue stream like the income tax. Where, where do they get their money? They get their money from sales tax from property tax for local, right. um, and then to some extent from things like oil extraction. It's, it's, you know, people think, oh, that's how Texas is able to finance itself without right. income taxes is uh, oil and gas. But as you mentioned, they just, they have a much more modest budget right. and more modest, you know, set of expectations of what state government should do. And they, they don't spend as much. And so they don't need to collect as much. And that's why they're able to balance budgets even with lesser revenue. Boy, uh, talking about the unpredictability of the California revenue streamer reminded me of the Los Angeles Dodgers in playoffs. Uh, <laughs> they may have the best record in baseball, but who knows what's going to happen. going to happen in the playoffs, right? That's right. <laughs> Indeed.